Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte in Miami. Today, we're speaking with Walt Odets about his new book, Out of the Shadows, Reimagining Gay Men's Lives, published in 2019 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Walt Odets is a clinical psychologist and writer. His prior book is entitled In the Shadows of the Epidemic, Being HIV Negative in the Age of AIDS, He has also contributed chapters to seven anthologies about the lives of gay men, and he lives in Berkeley, California, where he has practiced psychology since 1987. Walt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. I noticed that the title of your first book contains the phrase, In the Shadow, and your recent one is entitled, Out of the Shadows. Is this book a continuation of the first one? Well, it is to some extent, because... In, in the first book, I was we were in the middle of the epidemic, and there was a great deal I wanted to talk about in, in, in terms of gay men's lives, and I wasn't able to do it in that book. So I kept notes as I was writing that book, and, um, and I finally just decided, <coughs> sorry, I finally uh, decided to, um, with these two big boxes of notes, decided to write this last book. And it's much more about gay lives, broadly speaking, than gay lives uh, in, in the middle of an epidemic. So, so these were notes that you took about, you know, everyday, everyday, the everyday lives of gay men, maybe gay men in relationships, um, notes that you took of observations that you made uh, during the pandemic, but that uh, sorry, <laughs> during the epidemic, um, uh, that was a slip. But that I guess you felt constituted a story of their own, separate from the story you were telling at the time about the AIDS epidemic specifically. Well, yeah, I, I you know, the the current book, for example, discusses the whole idea of defining people as homosexuals or heterosexuals, which I think is a ridiculous idea. Um, but it just, that, that kind of exploration just wasn't appropriate in the first book. And, uh, the meaning of being gay was not appropriate. We were in the middle of an epidemic that was slaughtering people and, uh, HIV negative people had a particular problem, which is that they were excluded from gay communities in, in many ways because they didn't have the problem. So it simply would have been inappropriate. And I, for anyone who reads the current book, uh, the second one, um, the, you'll see that I discuss things, the developmental issues of gay people, that's the self-identities and so on. And that just wasn't material that fit into that earlier book. Incidentally, the, the HIV epidemic was a pandemic. It killed millions of people uh, around the world. And I think about, oh, 
350,000 uh, in the United States, and it's still killing people. So Now, in your opening of this book, you name a few issues that you think gay men remain in denial about and which actually need to be addressed. And one of these issues is that the AIDS epidemic is not actually over. You say that we are currently in what you call, quote, the late epidemic, which started around 1996. Can you explain this point? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it varies with people, but certainly there are um, people there are many people who don't have medical insurance, can't afford it, and can't af- uh, afford PrEP, uh, the pre-exposure prophylaxis. And uh, there's still a great deal of, of HIV infection around. It tends to be in disadvantaged communities. It's quite high in black communities. And uh, young people are still dealing with it. Uh, people who are too young to have ever lived through the the early epidemic. And I think the problems are different for those young people, but there's uh, the, the worst of the problems, I think, is that there's a huge amount of stigmatization of young people who contract HIV. And uh, so it, it's, it's a complicated situation. I could tell you a thousand things about it, but yes, there's still an epidemic going on. Well, well, what what is it that you are trying to say about it in this book, um, about the ways in which the epi- epidemic is is not over? Well, I think I think the stigmatization, which is incidentally within gay communities in, in the early epidemic, the stigmatization was coming from American society. I write mostly about gay men in, in the U.S. because that's what I'm familiar with work. And there was a tremendous neglect. Uh, Ronald Reagan was president, and it was six or seven years after the beginning of the epidemic before he ever publicly even mentioned the epidemic, much less tried try to do something about it. And um, so it's, it, it's different now. Uh, the, the stigmatization is coming from within gay communities. Young men stigmatizing other young men. And I think they, that young people have a fear about uh, contracting HIV. They don't really know what it's like and they, they try to avoid it, but they, they exclude um, uh, those of, of their age range who do, do have HIV. So I think that's quite destructive. I'm glad that you mentioned PrEP, the pre-exposure prophylactic, um, which is the medication that HIV negative people can take to prevent the acquisition of HIV. And look, I know a lot of gay men who feel that this medication signals the end of the AIDS crisis because with this medication, they no longer have to worry about contracting the disease. What's your response to this idea? Well, it's true. If you, if you have medical insurance and you, and you have the money to pay for, for the PrEP um, and you have a uh, community that in, in promotes the use of the PrEP drugs, they're, they're very effective. And I think it's, it's beyond very unlikely that someone who's u- regularly using PrEP would contract HIV. Um, but we've got a we've got a huge part of, of 
American uh, gay communities that simply can't afford the drug. And I, I think that I think the U.S. government and insurance companies should be standing around on street corners, just handing it out to people who are walking by. It's uh, it's a humane thing to do, and and it would also save a lot of money and a lot of medical costs. But so are you are you suggesting that the 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 AIDS crisis is not over to the extent that we have a situation where certain groups of people, the more privileged groups of people, yes, can have access to the medication um, that prevents a transmission of HIV, but others, but others do not. So, so really, is this late stage uh, crisis that you talk about really a crisis um, inflected with with racism and systemic bias? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So then how do we, in addition to thinking about this as a public health issue, if we think about it as a psychological issue, is this for people who are able to be, for gay men who are able to be on PrEP, should they care about HIV? Should they care about the history of the AIDS epidemic? No, I don't think so. You know, I, I was born in 1947, and I didn't I didn't care about the Great Depression, <laughs> you know. But I, there were adults around me who who talked about that a great deal. So it's the the early epidemic when it was completely out of control. We had no treatment. There were the first four years of that epidemic. We couldn't even we didn't even know what what was being communicated. What we didn't know if it was a virus, but if we did think it was a virus, we didn't know what virus. It was really in 1984 that it started in 81, but in 84, we were finally able to identify it. And then it took another year, April of 85, before we were able to test for it. So it was a very different kind of situation then. And we went through some you know, medications, AZT being the first of them, it came out in 1987. And it was it was not effective. It didn't it didn't protect people who had contracted HIV. So it's very different now, but it's it's still problematic for people who can't afford it, and it's it's not adequately promoted. Uh, I, there are certain physicians who actively promote it with patients, but there are a lot of people who don't have physicians. Well, so I, I got to say, I'm a little surprised to to hear you say that the people who do have access, unless I'm mis- misunderstanding you, shouldn't uh, care about the people that they don't that don't have that access. W- w- if that were the case, wouldn't that result in a in a divided gay male community? It, uh, it, divi- it's divided. It's it's divided by the stigmatization. I I think that the people who do have access should be much more supportive of people. Mm. I, perhaps I didn't say that clearly, but yes, I, I think that's very important. Do, do you, have you worked, do you work with people um, in your practice who, young people who have HIV and, and do you have a sense from that work what it's like in the 21st century to have HIV and how it's different from before? 
I have I have very little of that experience, and the reason is that I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I live in Berkeley, twelve miles from San Francisco, and in this particular area, uh, prep is very well promoted, and uh, there are still people, of course. I know in Al- Alameda County, the county I live in, on the east side of San Francisco Bay, there's but there there's still a lot of uh, a, lo- a lot of new infection, but they tend to be groups that don't see people for psychotherapy. And uh, partly because they're unfamiliar with it, partly because it's not part of their cultural system, uh, partly because they they don't have the money for therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't have that much experience with young people. I have a lot of experience with older people who have survived uh, with HIV, what are called long-term survivors. And, and tell us what, how do they see the present moment? You know, what, what do they think about where we are in, in the AIDS crisis? Um, I think it varies person to person, but I think the older men who are long-term survivors are, feel some relief. The, the, the epidemic now is a fraction of what it was in the 1980s and and up through the mid 90s. Uh, it's uh, it it was uh, a terror. It was like living in a war, and uh, and I think you know by by comparison, the the current uh, pandemic of of the coronavirus seems relatively mild to most of those people. How so? Tell us more about that. Well, it's uh, it's it's not stigmatized in in the uh, in in the way that HIV was stigmatized. You know, the, the, the what was going on uh, with HIV from 1981 through like 96, 97 um, was fags get AIDS, and that was that was a big part of how the how the whole situation was treated. And it, it tended the, the kind of stigmatization and shame that people felt simply about being gay was was only dramatically escalated by the HIV epidemic. And you know the idea that uh, if if they had a problem with HIV, well then they shouldn't have sex. Well, human beings have sex, <laughs> and that's something that has to be respected. Sex is an important part of human life, and so it's it's shifted. I'm, I'm not sure I'm quite answering your question here. Well, I I want to I'm actually glad we're talking about this because I I want to hear what you think about what it means for survivors of the AIDS epidemic in the '80s to talk about their experiences. Um, when I lived in New York City. I, I used to run a, a study group for LGBTQ psychoanalysts and therapists where each month we'd have a, ski, a speaker come talk to us about a different topic related to queer life. And one time I organized a presentation in, in which we revisited and discussed the AIDS crisis of the 80s, um, what it was like for people, how it affects them now. And even though most people found the discussion to be moving and rich, there was one senior therapist, a gay man who had been very involved in the 80s and treating AIDS patients, um, and who I am close to and look up to very much, he he admitted that AIDS is a subject he simply does not like to talk about because it's too traumatic. 
And now that it's in the past, he doesn't feel much need to talk about it. I got to say, I was a bit stunned, you know, therapist to therapist to hear that because as therapists, we, you know, we never think that there's anything that can't and shouldn't be talked about, but he, he just, he just felt like, why do we have to talk about this? It's too painful. Is that a feeling that you sympathize with or encounter yourself among, uh, older gay men? I encounter it among older gay men all the time. And I'm, I, I used to be a pilot, so I'm part of a gay pilots group here in San Francisco. And we haven't done it this year because of the pandemic, but um, we can sit around that table and I can tell by looking at some of the men, I can, I can distinguish the ones who have HIV and those who don't. But so if there are 10 or 12 of us having lunch on Sundays, uh, I have never heard the topic of the epidemic brought up. I'm very struck by that. And it simply was a trauma that no one wants to return to. And I, I myself think more about it. I, I wrote a lot about it. I did a lot of work. I worked for 15 years in HIV prevention and the psychology that would help support um, the control of HIV. But um, it, it is something that what you just described is something I see all the time. People simply don't bring it up. Do you think, do you think it's because you said it's still too traumatic? Do you ever think there's value or healing potential in, in raising the topic, in, in talking about it? I think there is. And I, I'll give you an example of, of, of how I, I would act that out is that I see an older man comes in for therapy and he's depressed. Uh, he feels his life is purposeless and, uh, and he needs help with that. And the, you know, part of the reason for all of that is that when he, he's, you know, now let's say he's, you know, 62, when he found out he had HIV, he was 28 and he assumed he'd never live. And he still doesn't believe that he's that he has a future. It's simply it's very difficult to be told at the age of 27 or 28 that you're going to die within six months or so, and to survive that, and and return to a feeling that you have a life in front of you that you can use. So, it's uh, you know that's st still a big problem. It it was a very traumatic. Uh, event I had in in my practice uh, in the late 80s and and into the 90s. I had one man die in the office d during a session. I believe and you write about that in the book. I, maybe it's in there. I don't remember the book that well, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, I'm sure I mentioned that. And I, I also had a, a group of, of HIV positive physicians. Uh, we did a weekly group. And I had four of them die in the same week. And I had a boyfriend at the time. And we were, we, we, in those days, we had pages. We didn't have uh, cell phones. So the, for those who don't know, the page is a little box on your belt. And it, it tingles. And then there's a number comes up. And you have to call that phone number from a local phone. And um, we would go out to dinner. He, he was a, a physician. I was a psychologist. And um, 
we hardly ever had a dinner where one or the other or both of the pagers didn't go off. And, you know, in the middle of the dinner, we'd have to get up and go somewhere. Uh, it, it, it was very traumatic. And it wasn't, you know, my trauma wasn't um, my fear of contracting HIV and dying from it. It was the, the people I worked with and it was my partner. I had a, a man I loved very much. We were together for seven years. Who, he died in 1992. And I went through the last year of his life was absolutely horrible. And that's something I'll never get over. Um, I can I, I can draw up images of him lying in bed, um, immobilized. And uh, so that people don't want to talk about this is understandable. I talk about it because, you know, my, my work, as you know, from yours, is that it's helpful very often to get people to talk about disturbing things. Yeah. You know, uh, another issue you address in the book and and that you say we are in denial about is the continuing struggle faced by many gay men today, given how much progress we appear to have made. Can you talk to us about how being gay is still a difficult and sometimes traumatic experience for some men? Yeah, I, I think that I think in terms of the, the total society and the presentation of a certain kind of media. So I'm talking about the New York Times or the New York Book Review, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, being gay doesn't have any any uh, meaning to it. It's just simply people. But the, the, the family is a much more important influence than the society as a whole. And I would say that a majority of young gay people grow up in, in unaccepting families. And that that's still true. I was I gave a talk in New York, uh, I think it was at the end of last year, and uh, there was a a young guy in the audience, you know, maybe thirty years old, and uh, he said, "I don't know, you know, why you think that um, that gay people have such a difficult time now." And uh, and I said, well, where do you live? And he said, I live in Manhattan. Did you grow up there? Yes, I, I grew up in Manhattan. And I said, have you ever been to, to Staten Island? He said, oh, no, I'd never go there. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, Staten Island is pretty much, you know, homophobic. And if you then take the rest of the United States and, you know, I don't know, you know, Alabama and Minnesota and I don't know what. I mean, there's a huge amount of stigma and an unsupportive or hostile family is very damaging. And, uh, and I, and so I still think that we have a majority that falls in that direction. A majority you think? Oh yeah. yeah. So then families, Yes. I mean, the families, most families are not reading the New York times. They're not reading <laughs> the New York book review. You know, uh, they're 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 not they're they're acculturated in a different way. And what we see, I mean, I I don't read local newspapers. I don't read the you know Minnesota Star or something like that. I read the New York Times or the Washington Post. Uh, well, being gay is fine if you read those two newspapers, but uh, most people are not re- reading that kind of material. 
and there's still a great they feel a great deal of shame and hostility about gay people so do you have any theory about why homophobia persists well you know i've been thinking about that for decades <laughs> and i don't know why it ever started it actually it, it's actually in a, re- a relatively recent problem uh, and it, it was in the late 19th century when the the word homosexual was first used and um it 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 began to define uh people men who had relationships with other men it it began to define them as a group. So this whole, whole idea of gay men as an, as, as an identity and a significant one is actually relatively recent, uh, maybe starting in, well, in the early 20th century and, you know, 1910, 1920, sort of in there. And in the, in the first chapter of the book, what I'm talking about is the title of the chapter is Are Gay Men Homosexuals? And my answer to that is no. Gay men are people who have relationships and an attachment with other human beings. And some people have attachment with people of the same gender. And that's really, that's really the issue. I think gay men are more interesting than straight men because I think they have a much broader, much deeper internal life because they've had to think about things. And, uh, but it's, but people can't be defined by whom they have sex with. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I, the, the attachment, um, one man's attachment to another man gets expressed sexually because that's one of the important ways that human beings express feelings for another person. But are you, so, so by that way of conceiving of what it means to be gay, are, are you, like, can a person be gay without being homosexual? In other words, can a person be gay even if they don't have sex with or romantic relationships with someone of the same sex? Yeah, sure. I mean, there there are there are people who are relatively asexual. I think that's you know fairly rare, but uh, certainly there there are men, uh, and I, and I've known some. Uh, who are emotionally attached to other men, but don't aren't sexual with them. They also aren't sexual with women usually. Is there such a thing then as as a man who, let's say, is married to a woman, um, but by virtue of his interests or by virtue of other characteristics, he'd qualify by your definition as gay? Yeah, sure. I, I I hear about that all the time. I've had over the years um, a well, a handful. I don't know, five or six uh, young gay men who work as uh, sex workers. So, um, you know, essentially rent boys, as they would say in London. And um, and what I heard from them always was that their clients were always uh, straight men who were married to women. But wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be someone, what's the difference between that kind of, uh, that kind of person or someone who's gay, but on what they say on the down low? Well, they're in the closet, you know, as as the saying goes. And I think that they're also bisexual people. There's no question. I think, I think human beings are by nature bisexual. 
and that social constructions kind of deny that. But yeah, I mean, there. I, I don't think this has to be defined. I don't think we have to define people as gay or not gay or bisexual or not bisexual, um, unless you know we're just we're just talking about statistics or something. But in, in terms of emotional life, is complex. Uh, when I was young, I had sex with women, and I was not, I grew up in a certain kind of family that made that a, a completely non-issue. Mm-hmm. whom one had sex with but um i i loved a couple of those women you, you know i as i you know kind of turned 30 i thought no i really kind of wanted to spend my life with men and i didn't it didn't i didn't say to myself i want to be gay because i don't know my parents had all kinds of f- friends who men who lived with men my my middle name is is whitman so i'm named after walt whitman and when, when I was a, a kid, you know, maybe 10 years old, I asked my father about it. And one of the things he told me about Walt Whitman was that he, he lived with a man. I think he said something like, you know, he lived with a man the way a lot of men live with women. That's something you make your mind up about when you're older. And uh, so I didn't, I, I didn't decide at 30 to become gay or to come out. I decided that I, I wanted to live with men. I'm very interested in the way that you you describe it in the book. Um, you call it a gay sensibility. You say that gay men possess uh, this gay sensibility. What, what defines or what are the harm, hallmarks of the gay sensibility? Yeah, that's a complicated question with a complicated answer. But um, what I'm talking about there is a kind of emotional breadth and depth that is um, taken away from males in, in, in their very early age, you know, the, the obvious one being boys don't cry. Well, when, when we're, when we're, when, when we're infants, when we're two years old, three years old, our emotional lives, uh, the emotional lives between males and females are very, very similar. And boys are, uh, taught not to behave that way. And it's a social construction that I think is destructive because it limits the lives of people. Most of my very close friends, the ones with whom I can uh, really talk intensely about emotional issues, almost all of them are women. And uh, men have a great difficulty with that. They're very uncomfortable with that. So these women also possess the gay sensibility, you think? Yeah, I think they have a, more of what we'd call a female sensibility. Mm, mm-hmm. and, that gay men have a mix of what we would call a female sensibility and a male sensibility. So it's some kind of mix. It's, but it's broader than that of most uh, so-called straight men. Uh, people have to think about themselves and think about who they are. You know, a 14-year-old in puberty has to think about how he relates to other people, why he, you know, wants to touch another boy in school and uh, and has to think about how others are going to read that kind of behavior. So it, it, it's a kind of an, an emotional uh, self-exploration that other boys don't have. Other boys are out there throwing baseballs around and uh, hitting each other, <laughs> you know, th- throwing beer bottles at each other. It's, uh, it's a, v- a very different experience. You, you point out in the book that there is a danger or a cost 
when gay men describe themselves to straight individuals as something like, oh, I'm just like you. The only difference is that I'm attracted to men, but otherwise we're the same. What's the cost of this kind of thinking? Well, I, I think it, it constricts and narrows lives. It's, it's you know, what I would call normalization. Uh, people try to normalize themselves. I think the, the uh, marriage thing has, it, there are a lot of good points to gay people being married, but some of it is just an effort to socially normalize oneself. And, um, and I, I think, you know, Pete Buttigieg, whom I kind of like, uh, he, he's a completely normalized gay man. <laughs> and um, it, I, I think it, it, it limits a life. I think life can be more interesting than that. You, you mean that you think he's limiting his life or that it, it, it limits the lives of other gay men by virtue of his, I guess, heightened visibility? Well, I, yeah, I think he, I think he's a model, and I think there a lot of people appreciate appreciate his normalizing um, being gay. So you know, the people are thinking, uh, well, if, you know, Pete Pete can be gay, I can be gay, and 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 that'll be okay. And I think it's narrowing. People have to make their own choices about that. I think there are good people reasons for people to get married. But I think there are also some that um, um, the, the, that are the damage lives. There was a I, I can't remember the name of the organization. It's the big you know gay organization. But they were sending out solicitations, and I got one from them uh, where they were promoting gay marriage before the Supreme Court allowed it. And um, they said something like, um, "The it's important that gay people get married." Uh, so that they can re- return to their communities and be valued as community members. Well, that bothers me. Why? Because I don't. I don't think that's why someone should get married. <laughs> I think that if you have to get married and disguise yourself as a normal person because you're married, and that's the only way that you can have a community or get along with other people, it's too narrow. You know, it's funny because I, I tend to agree with you, and I, I sometimes myself wonder if, if even heterosexual couples, in some way, limit themselves by virtue of participating in the institution of marriage, or at least the way it's uh, construed these days. Was that a question? No, I just I I, I wonder if this is if what you're describing. I guess my question would be: Do you think that what you're describing is? limited only to gay people or is there something about any kind of normalization any kind of institutionalization that is always going to have some kind of um limiting constraining effect absolutely absolutely i i don't think life should be constructed by communities or or by cultures or societies and we we have there's much more potential in life um you know in america half of uh, legal marriages uh, end in divorce, and I would think that half of the of those that don't end in divorce ought to end in divorce. <laughs> they're they're unhappy, so you know maybe I'm making up the figure, of course, but I mean maybe a quarter of marriages is really are a great idea. <laughs> um, well, Walt, it's it's 
been a pleasure to talk to you about the book. We were almost out of time, but I didn't want our our time to end without my uh, finding out from you what you're up to these days, what you're working on now. Well, I'm still doing, I do my practice two and a half days a week and I'm recovering from having written that book <laughs> and promoted it. It was, it was a, an exhausting experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I started the writing of the book in 2014 and it was published in 2019. So uh, it was a tremendous amount of work, the writing and then the aftermath, the editing and, and all of that. So I sit around and read, <laughs> I watch movies, I walk the dog, that kind of stuff. I spend a lot of time with friends, um, less so right now, of course, because of the pandemic. I'm relaxing. I think that's the gist of my answer. Well, it's it's really well-deserved, and I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I want to remind our listeners of uh, the name of your book. It is Out of the Shadows, Reimagining Gay Men's Lives, and my guest has been Walt Odets. Uh, Walt, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate our, our doing this. Take care.